Welcome back to the Diet Doctor Podcast with Dr. Brett Scher. Today, I'm joined by Ryan Lowry, Dr. Ryan Lowry, who has a master's degree in exercise physiology and nutritional science and a PhD in health and human performance and is the president of ASPI, Applied Science and Performance Institute. And Ryan is, he's an expert in human performance in the ketogenic diet, but also bridges this gap between science, academia, and implementation for the everyday person for, for health and performance, not just from an athletic standpoint, but from just an overall life performance. He has over a hundred published articles in peer review um, journals, book chapters, and then he's also published his own book, The Ketogenic Bible. Ryan is a wealth of information and can talk on a lot of different topics from authority. And I really appreciate about that. I really appreciate that about him. So I hope you enjoy this conversation. We talk, we touch on a lot of different topics and go a lot of different directions, but there's a, a, a bunch of nuggets in here that you can walk away with to really help you in your daily life. So if you want to learn more and see the full transcripts, go to dietdoctor.com. Otherwise, sit back, relax, and enjoy this interview with Dr. Ryan Lowry. Ryan Lowry, thanks so much for joining me on the Diet Doctor podcast today. Thanks, man. It's an absolute honor to be on here. Well, I've I've really enjoyed learning more about you and listening to your talks, and you do a fantastic job of sort of bridging the gap between the academics, the research, and the practical implementation on how to be healthier, how to use a low-carb lifestyle, how to train like an athlete or just be an average everyday person and be healthy. So tell us a little bit about your journey, how you got to this point and how you got to the point where you can sort of blend these these worlds so well. Yeah, well, thank you. I, I really appreciate that. It A lot of it stemmed from a passion for us. So I grew up playing sports my entire life and really wanted to figure out how to take my performance to the next level. So I started really reading some of these research papers or, or these influential bloggers for a long time. And I was like, oh, this is this is really interesting. And then as I went throughout college, I started diving more and more into actual literature, actual research. And soon after traveling to all these different conferences, I started realizing there's so much great information. But the challenge is scientists speak at like this high, high level and try and it really just goes over people's heads. Yeah. And I'm like, how do you take that information that's such high quality information and not, I don't like to use the term dumb it down, but how do you make it relatable? How do you take that information and translate it and be able to put it into practical, practical, meaningful use? And ultimately, uh, that's what we do at ASPI, the Applied Science and Performance Institute. We said, you know what, how do we take this cutting edge research, look at everything from the full spectrum of performance, high level athletes to people with neurological conditions, how do we take that research and then be able to get that message out to the world? Yeah. Yeah, so at ASPI, you're working with professional athletes who every half of a second can make the difference between victory or defeat, and you're working with sort of the everyday person who just wants to think a little clearer, be a little healthier, live a little longer, and then you're dealing with people with significant severe diseases, whether it's Alzheimer's disease, Parkinson's disease. It must be a very unique mix where you're not sure who you're going to see or what you're going to do in your day. Exactly. We see a whole host of different people, and I think at the end of the day, it stems from optimizing human performance. Mm -hmm. And a lot of times people think performance and they think and they immediately go to athletes. And we, like you said, we work with the most elite athletes in the world. And for them, 
a millisecond can mean the difference between gold and not even placing. So right. so it's very it's very very intense. But at the same token, performance also is a grandfather being able to get up and play around with his grandchildren. Like that's performance as well. So how do we work both ends of the spectrum and use the science and the technology to be able to apply it to both? And that's what we try and do at ASPI. Yeah, that's a great perspective. Now, one of the things you talk about is sort of when I think when you first started getting involved in the research was can you build muscle on a ketogenic diet? And everybody was saying, no, you can't. And you did a couple different studies showing that yes, you can build muscle on a ketogenic diet. And then it brings in the whole concept of protein, right? The thought is we need more protein to build muscle. Um, And one of the things I've heard you say is we need less protein on a ketogenic diet. So tell us a little bit about what you learned about building muscle on a keto diet and how protein plays into that. Yeah, absolutely. I, I think uh, it was a big question. It was something that I was really concerned with. I was like, if I, if I do this keto thing, am I going to just melt away? Am I going to lose muscle? Because everyone, my entire life, I was taught you need carbohydrates. Insulin is anabolic. It helps promote muscle growth. You need it in order to gain any muscle. So we were really one of the first ones to, to look at this. And we said, you know, what if you take two groups and we took a Western diet group, like people who are eating a, a healthy Western diet, um, and a ketogenic dieting group. We matched them for protein intake. Mm-hmm. So both groups had about 20% of their calories from protein. And then we trained them for eight weeks. And at the end of, at the end of that period, we looked at muscle mass. We, we did a DEXA, body composition. And we looked at their lean body mass, and there was no differences between the people who were eating carbohydrates yeah. and the people who were eating a well-formulated ketogenic diet. Uh, and their protein was matched. And so it was kind of like this eye-opening thing. And people were like, there's no way. How is that possible? And then so we took a deeper dive and started doing more animal studies, looking at things like muscle protein synthesis, muscle protein breakdown. We know that ketones themselves prevent the breakdown of like leucine, which is a very important amino acid for maintaining muscle. We also found out, and this is pretty new, is that ketones themselves can stimulate muscle protein synthesis. So kind of to your second point is, do we need more protein? Do we need less protein? I think that two reasons. One, because of the elevation in ketones themselves being anabolic in nature, you likely probably need less protein than a normal individual. And two, from just general research, we know that the more insulin sensitive you are, uh, the more likely you are, you are going to respond to a lower dose of protein to trigger muscle protein synthesis. It's one of the reasons why if you take a 20-year-old who is highly insulin sensitive and, okay. comp- and, and take a 70-year-old who might be more insulin resistant, in order to turn on the switch or trigger muscle protein synthesis, the 20-year-old might only need 20 grams of protein. The 70-year-old might need double that, 40 grams of protein. So what if you were to have that 70-year-old be at the same degree of insulin sensitivity as a 20-year-old. Maybe that's the difference is that you're the more insulin sensitive you are, likely the lower the amount of protein that you need to initiate that response. So there is some protective effect from the ketones itself, but then beyond that, it's the insulin sensitivity that can affect the degree of protein. Now, has that study been done? The give uh, 10% of calories from protein, 20% and 30% and train them and see their muscle synthesis. And that there's would, a study for you. That, that would be really interesting. And I think yeah. uh, there's, there's a lot of factors, but I think insulin sensitivity is one of the overarching factors is the more you can be insulin sensitive, 
the more likely you're going to respond to lower doses uh, or have a lower threshold for triggering muscle protein synthesis. And when we talk about muscle building, I mean, we're not just talking about the professional athletes or the weightlifter. We're talking about the 70-year-old who wants to get up off the couch or falls down and wants to get up off the floor and avoid sarcopenia and not fall and break your hip. So when you're talking about muscle building, you're talking about sort of the whole spectrum. Exactly. And I think a lot of times people, when they hear muscle building, they immediately think bodybuilder, athlete. But sarcopenia, like age-related muscle loss. Females, you want to have muscle mass. A lot of times they think, oh, I'm going to I'm gonna start training or I'm going to gain too much muscle and I'll look bulky. No, you need muscle mass because the more muscle mass you have, the more insulin sensitive you'll likely be. Right. You need a place to, to have that storage. You want to prevent sarcopenia because we all know the minute you fall down, break a hip, it's like things start spiraling downhill from there. So how do you maintain and if you're trying to improve it or at minimum keep the amount of muscle mass that you have, I think those are two very important things when it comes to how do I keep muscle mass and utilize a well-formulated ketogenic diet to do that. Yeah, so in the keto community, a lot of people come to low-carbon keto to lose weight. Their first thought is not muscle mass. Their first thought is not either even cardiovascular health or whatever. Their, their thought is lose weight. So as they're losing weight, are a lot of them also losing muscle, do you think, in the beginning? So I think a lot of it depends on, well, they lose lean body mass. Yeah. Um, And so it's important to understand there's muscle, like actual dry muscle is a component of lean body mass, but like glycogen is another component of Uh like, you know that uh, glycogen is stored inside of muscles. And when you first start a ketogenic diet, sometimes that can be attributed to the water that's coming from fat mass, lean body mass, whatever it may be. That can contribute over time as you adapt, you start to replenish and upregulate pathways to increase that glycogen. So it's about the same as it was prior to doing it. But I think if you're on a well-formulated ketogenic diet and you're having an adequate amount of protein, um, people won't see uh, muscle mass loss. Yeah. Do you see risks of too much protein? I do. I think I think at some level, there probably is... Uh, a risk of like, hey, if you're having too much like bodybuilder type, I, when I was younger um, and I was on a carbohydrate based diet, I was eating everything in sight, the worst, worst diet you could, you could imagine. Yeah. I was probably having 250, 275 grams of protein a day. I was eating Greek yogurt, like left in, in between classes, everything. Right. Um, and adding protein on top of that. But <laughs> I think you thought more was better. I always thought, hey, if I want to put on as much muscle as possible, I need yeah. to be eating 300 grams of protein a day. Right. I think at some level, yes, you will have some uh, conversion over into like getting some gluconeogenesis from some amino acids if you're having too much. I'm more concerned, especially females and males, but I often see it in females, is them not getting enough. Because mm-hmm. when people switch to a ketogenic diet um, and they're, they're eating this way, a lot of times people feel uh, less hungry all the time. So right. they might only eat one or two meals a day and they're not used to getting in enough protein. And so sometimes I see people eating one meal a day and they might be getting in 20 grams of protein in that meal. And people are like, why is my hair falling out? Why am I getting keto rash? And I'm like, those are clear signs of protein deficiency. So I, I encourage people to get enough. I, I'm like, make sure you're getting enough, but just don't go overboard with it. There's no reason to go bodybuilder 300 grams per day. Right. Yeah. And you probably work with a lot of bodybuilders who are trying to go keto and 
And do they cycle? Do they do a lot of your athletes, I guess? Let's not focus on bodybuilders, but athletes. Do you cycle a lot of your athletes in and out of keto, in and out of carbs, depending on the season and the competition and so forth? Yeah, a lot of the athletes that we work with use more of like a targeted approach. And I think it's it's an interesting approach for people who are performing at that high level Mm -hmm. is they use carbs as a tool. It's not a necessity. They're utilizing it as, a, as what we call an ergogenic aid. So if we have someone who's about to go do an event, they might have 30 to 60 grams of glucose right before their event, but they're burning through it immediately. Yeah. It's not like they're taking that in and they're doing a cheat day and just sitting on their butt watching TV. <laughs> it's like they're actually going in and utilizing that fuel source and utilizing carbohydrates for what they're meant to be, which is this tool or potential ergogenic aid, not a necessity that I'm just having just because. Right, right. So when you look at athletes, um, I mean, we can't talk about athletes as one thing, right? There's the ultra endurance athletes, there's the sprinter, there's the weightlifters, um, there's people doing uh, jujitsu. And so some are the more steady, continuous exercises. Some are the repetitive glycolytic type exercises. Do you find some are going to do better or worse on a low carb ketogenic lifestyle? Yeah. A lot of times people think that people who are anaerobic or versus people who are aerobic, people who are anaerobic, like doing those short, high intensity interval type training, they think they'll, they'll suffer. We haven't seen that yet. Um, it's possible in like sprinters. We don't work as much with like sprinters. Like if you're doing like, Hey, you only have a straightaway sprint. There is a possibility that your performance may not be as well. If you're fully adapted, I don't know that yet. Cause I think ketones can provide some quick energy, but certainly in the aerobic sports, I think being a ketogenically or fat adapted in some capacity is way better than running into the, the wall or hitting yeah. the wall and running out of glucose and having all those gels and goos and everything. <laughs> and it messes up your stomach. But I think for a aerobic, it's very clear. The in-between is what people, like I think Brazilian jiu-jitsu, we work with a lot of Brazilian jiu-jitsu. MMA is starting to get a lot of traction for it. It's very big in sports that where the weight to power ratio becomes very important. Wrestling, things like that, because your goal is how do I fight or compete at the lowest weight possible, yet maintain or maximize my power and output and strength. How do you do that? Well, I think being on a well-formulated ketogenic diet ultimately allows that because when you cut down and you're not on a ketogenic diet, you're at risk for muscle mass loss. You're losing strength. You're losing power. What if you can preserve that? And like we were talking about, maybe due to the elevation in ketones, maybe you're able to preserve that muscle mass when you're dieting down to a different weight class and still be able to perform. Right. That's a great point. Now, you mentioned the term adaptation. So we talk about keto adaptation just from a lifestyle standpoint that there's that first week or two of the keto flu and you feel terrible, you need to hydrate and use electrolyte supplements. But from a sports standpoint and a, and a uh, physical performance standpoint, that adaptation is a lot murkier in terms of how long it is. Some would say six months, some would say a year. How do you gauge whether someone is a adapted and how do you know when they've reached that point? Is it their respiratory quotient on a cardiometabolic test or is it some other testing you can do? I mean, because it seems very vague at this point. It is. It really is vague. I wish there was a bet. I w- you know what? One of these days, someone has to develop a way to measure like MCT transport capacity. I think that would be the best way to look at it. We don't yeah. have that technology yet. But to your point, I think looking at things like RER, seeing where they're at, if they're closer to like 0.7 or if they're still up at like 0.9 or 1.0, meaning that they're primarily utilizing carbohydrates or are they primarily utilizing fat? 
And we also do like pre and then every week we'll kind of do these follow-ups of looking at different measures of performance, vertical jump power, bench press power, see like it, how much they dwindle and then how quickly it takes to come back. And for everyone, it's so individualized. We know that in the keto adaptation, there's ways to accelerate it, doing things like intermittent fasting, making sure you're supplementing with the proper electrolytes, right. doing high intensity interval training, depleting muscle glycogen levels as fast as possible. It's one of the things I tell our athletes all the time is like if you're gonna if you're gonna do this, like like fight through it. It's like do it, try and do it as quick as possible. Like I know you're not gonna be like, hey, I wanna have my best workout, but fight through it, deplete that muscle glycogen because what's on the other side is a lot better. So the quicker you can get through it, the quicker you can adapt, the more you'll the more you'll likely sustain this and be able to make it a lifestyle. So that's for an athlete. What about for another everyday Joe who says, I wanna go ketogenic? I've heard terrible things about the keto flu. Uh, so I'm just going to take it easy for the next couple of weeks and, and drink my bone broth and get plenty of electrolytes. Would you tell them the opposite, even not the athlete, but just say you need to get out there and you need to burn that glycogen and you need to be more active during this week or two weeks, even though you feel like crud? Yeah, I still think that's the best approach. Yeah. Um, and I know it's tough because people want to take it the, the easy route. And yeah. if that's the mindset, but if you really want to embark on this, I say go in and you like you got to make sure that this is something you want to commit to and go, hey, I'm going to go out even if it's not, I'm going to go out and do high intensity interval training, just go on a walk, stay, get moving, try and deplete muscle glycogen levels, maybe incorporate in some intermittent fasting, make sure you're supplementing with electrolytes and having things like bone broth, make sure you're incorporating those things in because the quicker you can adapt, the less likely you are to be like, you know what, I'm just having a headache and this isn't worth it. And you go back to eating a pop tart or something else. Yeah. And, and then you just fall into this vicious cycle that you're like, I could never do that. I could never get over keto flu. I want people to battle through it, get through it as quickly as possible, and then realize the long term benefits. Yeah. I haven't thought about Pop-Tarts in a while. You know how many <laughs> Pop-Tarts I ate on my bike going just like hours and hours fueled on Pop-Tarts after Pop-Tart? Oh, makes oh me the sick s'mores now. were the best. <laughs> we got to make a keto one. Yeah, that's <laughs> right, keto Pop-Tarts. Yeah. Oh, so actually that brings up an interesting topic right there. All these keto products that are popping up. I mean, I'm a big proponent of a real food keto diet. And for some people, that still just doesn't cut it. And they want the products. They want the cookies. Uh, they want the the packages. And, and some of that is a mixed bag, right? I mean, not all of it, our body's not going to respond as it should to a lot of that, depending on what are some of the ingredients. And now, I heard you're doing a, a whole certification process now with your company to certify these. So tell us a little bit about your concerns of what's in these packaged keto products and how your certification process is going to help with that. Definitely. And I'm I'm the same way. Like I advocate whole foods, real foods as much as humanly possible. But I, I understand the dynamic that people are like, I want a cookie occasionally or I want a brownie or something. Yeah. Um, and that's fine as long as the product is built the right way or as long as it's created the right way. So it's not utilizing things like sorbitol or maltitol, which are sugar alcohols, but we know not only do they have problems with GI issues, they also 
can spike glucose and insulin, which isn't very good. Um, So they can be low carb, they can be keto, but still spiking glucose and insulin. Right. And I wouldn't even consider them keto if they have high amount. Like you, if you go down your traditional grocery aisle, and I've made this mistake very early on when I first started the ketogenic diet. Um, I was like, wow, like all my friends, we were going out to the movies. All my friends were grabbing the regular Reese's, Kit Kats, things like that. I go down and I'm like, wow, this is sugar-free candy. And I like look at the back and I'm like, oh, this is weird. It has 30 grams of carbs, but 28 grams of sugar alcohols. I was like, oh, it's only two net carbs because you subtract it out. I go to the movie theater and like, Four pieces of these, like the, like their sugar free Reese's, uh, going in, and I was like, oh gosh, my stomach was in a knot. It was <laughs> killing me. I I was like, there's no way I'll do ever do that again. But people don't know that. Yeah. And I think it's sad to see products like that that have so much sorbitol and maltitol. So that's my biggest concern: is not only are there sugar alcohols that can cause a spike. Um, there's also various different sweeteners, but there's also like fibers, like Mm -hmm. not all fibers are created equal. And I think we're starting to see some regulations starting to change. It's just not fast enough yet. So I I hope it's not malicious on the company's part. I hope it's just a lack of understanding on the R and D, but yeah, it's easier to make something with sorbitol or maltitol. Yeah, it's easier to use a fiber known as isomaltooligosaccharide. IMO. IMO. But that actually gets digested. It actually causes a glucose and insulin response. Uh, we published a paper on that versus like soluble corn fiber, which doesn't. So it's just there's a they a lot of times they take the easier route because that's all they know, but really the companies that are doing it right that's who we're trying to reward. We want to make sure the companies are protected, but the consumer is 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 protected and going out and being armed and saying you know what there's going to be this explosion of keto products. It's going to happen. Yeah. It's all about the intent and the research and development behind the product to make sure it's done the right way. And so we want to be kind of a voice or a reason to help further that and say, you know what, we're going to not only test these out and look at all of the ingredients, but we're actually going to test this out and do blood testing to make sure that these things test out properly. Right. Blood testing. I heard you mention both glucose and ketones, mm-hmm. right? Because if the if the glucose doesn't go up, but the ketones go down, that could be a sign that the insulin is going up. Correct. So you got to make that jump. Exactly okay. right. So for someone, for our listeners here who are going to go out tonight and look for a cookie, a keto cookie, or look for a keto snack, what ingredients should they be looking for um, in terms of the fiber? You mentioned soluble corn fiber and some of the sugar alcohols. What are some of the good ones that they should be able to look for if there are quote-unquote good ones? Yeah, when it comes to sugar alcohols, I like to stand uh, – Stay with like erythritol. Um, xylitol is okay. It's lower GI. I um, I don't you want. I don't keep it in the house just because I have a pet, and you just need to be careful with xylitol is like poisonous for pets. Oh, okay. Um, but erythritol is probably one of the, one of the better ones. Um, stevia, monk fruit, um, things like that. I'm starting to see a new trend, which I'm excited about because we're starting to do research on this. It's actually a rare sugar, and people freak out because they hear the word sugar, but it's called allulose. Mm-hmm. Um, and we're starting to see it pop up more and more, but it tastes just like sugar. But we actually have done research where 92 to 97% of it's completely excreted out of the body and causes no glucose response, no insulin response. We're actually collaborating with someone overseas that is working with type 1 diabetics and just giving them allulose and their glucose is dropping and no increases in insulin. Really? Very, very fascinating stuff. It's very new. Um, But I think we're going to start seeing more and more of that emerge. And I hope that one day we'll start seeing these big soda companies and them start switching over to utilizing something like that because 
it literally tastes just like sugar, but doesn't have the same metabolic disaster that yeah. tons of sugar has. That's so interesting because it, 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 you can look at it from two ways, right? It, you're getting rid of the metabolic disaster of sugar, but you're still creating that slippery slope of wanting the sweet taste and training our taste buds for the sweetness. And that's partly why I recommend you know whole foods only. And I, I understand that people are still going to crave that sweet tooth, but I love it when someone comes back to me and says, wow, carrots taste so sweet now. Whereas before they could just, you know, pop carrot after carrot and not even, not even blink, but now a carrot tastes sweet. And I'm like, yes, you trained your taste buds. You're doing it right. Yeah. So I, I think that's so interesting. Yeah. So we, we talked about athletes and athletic performance. And one of the other things you've talked about is longevity. And, and that's a huge topic right now, not just longevity, but also health span, living healthy as long as we can. And so there's some thoughts that a ketogenic diet and, and ketones have a positive benefit for longevity. Obviously, we don't have 20, 30, 40-year studies on it, but tell us your thoughts on where the science is for that and where the hypotheses are for that and what you're most excited about for ketosis for longevity. For sure. And if you look at, if you type in keto for longevity or keto for health span on Google, you'll get a very different message because most of the people misinterpret the data. Yeah. Um, and a lot of the things, there's meta-analyses done on these long-term studies that are like, oh, low carb isn't going to be good for you. It's going to cut your life expectancy. But in reality, if you really dig into those studies, they're using 30, 40, 50% carbohydrates and deeming that low carb. So that's one thing. If you Just be careful with what information you're taking in. That's why Diet Doctor does an amazing job you do an amazing job putting out this information that's legitimate information, not something that's just, hey, here's a study and let me uh, misinterpret it for media and press and pump it out there. Um, But what we're seeing on longevity is a completely different picture. So we're seeing uh, there's early studies with like ketones and C. elegans, um, which is like a worm type model extending lifespan. We did a research study where we actually took animals and about the human equivalent of about 20 years of age. We took them at that point and placed them on a ketogenic diet and carried them out for their entire lives and and just looked at what happened. We looked at everything. We looked at every marker you can think of. We're still looking at markers inside of tissue, everything you can imagine. And what we found was the animals that were on a ketogenic diet, their half-life, meaning that the amount of time it took for half of the animals in that group to die, was almost double the amount from the Western dieting group, which was very, very interesting. And and these animals lived significantly longer, um, and we just carried them out, let them live throughout their entire life and just fed them a, a, a ketogenic diet versus like a traditional Western diet. And even though protein was matched, they still lived longer. Yeah. Um, so there seems to be something unique about these ketone molecules that like being in a state of ketosis itself and not having that roller coaster of glucose and insulin all the time uh, seems to promote that. I wish we could do a study in humans, but none of us would be around to see it. Right, <laughs> so. right. Well, I think that's what's so interesting is that the benefit of the ketone, uh, the ke- ketogenic diet from the ketones themselves or from the reduction in carbs and the insulin resistance or a little combination of both. So there, there are studies showing that uh, ketones can affect genetic expression and HDAC in, inhibition. And w- what is the level of science for ketones themselves as being a beneficial marker of of health and longevity rather than the diet. 
Yeah, I think it's a combination. Yeah. I think I, it's tough to titrate out which it is. I think it really is the suppression of insulin, chronic elevated levels of, of insulin. I think it's lowering inflammation. Uh, there's a lot of systemic inflammation that happens, and both ketones themselves uh, can help with that via through a ketogenic diet or even ketones themselves. Partly because if you look at studies on ketones, it down it shuts off the NLRP3 inflammasome. Mm-hmm. It blocks the NLRP3 inflammasome, which is a main marker of inflammation. Uh, so it's tough to titrate it out, but it seems to be just being in a state of ketosis seems to be driving that response. Yeah. Because it's so interesting for people to try and figure out, do I need to be in ketosis? Is a low carb that's not quite ketosis good enough? And of course, it depends on your goals and where you're coming from. And I think there's still a lot unanswered about that. Um, but certainly interesting to think about. Yeah. And I think, I think it's a moving target for everyone. Like I know people who are, we have athletes that can be eating 80 to 90 grams of carbohydrates and still be registering 1.0 millimoles. Um, but they're eating, their calories are so high and they're burning so much because they're working out three times a day. But then you also know people who are probably eating 20 or 30 grams and that's, and they, that's what they need in order to stay into ketosis. So it's, it's very individualized, uh, when you're talking about like low carb versus ketogenic, but like 40% 40% or 30%, which is what some of those studies that are doing like mortality studies, that's, that I wouldn't even consider that low carb. To me, that's still really high carb. Right. Yeah. right. It's sad that that's considered low carb con- compared to the uh, standard Western diet awful. here. Yeah. And also there's the, there are observational studies that do food frequency questionnaires and there's tons of confounding variables and the healthy user bias. I mean, th- that's not science. I right. mean, that, that is not science. And that's why I'm glad you're doing, the science you're doing really is sort of more rigorous and controlled and um, more useful from an investigative standpoint. So Thank I hope you. you do more of that for sure. Thank you. <laughs> So then there's this whole field of exogenous ketones. Um, So when we talk about is there something unique and special about ketones themselves, then the question becomes, well, should we just be pounding extra ketones? And there, I think it's important to separate a couple of different concepts. There's treating diseases like traumatic brain injury or Alzheimer's or Parkinson's. Um, There's athletic performance. And then there's general health. And how exogenous ketones fit into those three categories, I think, is very different. So tell us a little bit about how you see and how you use use exogenous ketones. Yeah, that's a great point. I like bucketing them out into those those three different buckets. Um, to look at ketones, I think ketones, exogenous ketones came out onto the market in the bad light. I think people were, they were being marketed as like, hey, just drink this and you'll lose 15 pounds. It doesn't matter if you go eat a Big Mac or you eat whatever, you're yeah. just going to lose weight doing it. And that wasn't the right approach. And I think it's been refined since of understanding like there is, it's not a magic supplement. It's not going to magically melt body fat off of your off of your body. If you're talking about general health, to your point of like an, uh, inhibiting HDAC and some of these longevity, there is possibility that ketones themselves. There are studies like in the C. elegans, they were utilizing just exogenous ketones. They okay. they didn't they weren't they weren't putting them on a certain diet. They were utilizing exogenous ketones. We've done studies in animals utilizing both a combination of a ketogenic diet and exogenous ketones and saw a slightly better result for like things like increasing brown fat, decreasing food efficiency, which is the amount of weight you gain over the amount of food you consume. Hmm. Um, so for general health, that's really the application. The other application where the weight loss can come from consuming exogenous ketones is when people consume exogenous ketones, they seem to feel more satiated. So the thought process is like if you're consuming exogenous ketones and you're extending that fasting 
window, if that's something that it's the same reason why if you have a little bit of MCT oil inside of your coffee, right. it's extending your it can extend your fasting window so you're eating less within that window. That ultimately long term will help with body composition and weight loss. So I think a lot more people are starting to report seeing that and utilizing it for that benefit right. versus like, hey, just drink this and then I'm gonna go eat a ton of carbs on top of it. But to the other aspects, we're starting to see more and more research on performance. Uh, there's some early studies with like the ketone ester on performance. We're starting to see some now with ketone salts looking at athletic performance. So there is potentially an application there. Um, and then to your point, I think starting to utilize some of these uh, interventions for things like neurological conditions where uh, there's an energy gap right? We're starting to call Alzheimer's type 3 diabetes. And the problem is the the receptors in the brain are insulin resistant. They're not able to properly take up and utilize glucose uh, as effectively as it used to prior to having that diagnosis. Right. So how do you provide a fuel source to the brain um, that allows individuals to, to get something to there? Dr. Mary Newport has a great, great uh, TED Talk, and she wrote a book on this talking about how with her husband – he, he wouldn't go on a ketogenic diet. He would, And it's tough when you're dealing with family members like, eat this. He wouldn't eat it. But what she would do is she would give him spoonfuls of coconut oil at the time. And then the ketone supplements started becoming more and more readily available and she started giving those. But her, she was just like, how do I get some type of elevation of a substrate that his brain can actually utilize? And she saw amazing improvements, even with just coconut oil, utilizing that to try and get that fuel source to the brain. So to your point, I think it's, I think there are different applications and it's just using it in context as a tool, not a crutch. So do you have research studies ongoing at this point for neurologic disorders and athletic performance where you're actually studying it so we can maybe see some evidence coming out in the yeah, near future? We have, um, we have a case study that was report that we just published on Crohn's um, okay. because of the anti-inflammatory aspect of it. Yeah. So uh, lowered CRP, uh, which we tend to see with exogenous ketones. Um, we're working right now, I'm fascinated with Parkinson's and traumatic brain injury mainly, and Alzheimer's falls within that realm. But we, we have a case study on Parkinson's, which is pretty amazing. And we're starting to replicate that and see it more and more where, again, I think it's an, I think it's an energy gap. And so if you're providing these individuals with a fuel source that they can utilize, one of the reasons where I think exogenous ketones can play a role is, say you're taking a professional athlete. We work with NFL athletes. If they're not on a ketogenic diet during the season, what can you give them? Boom, they take a huge hit. They have a concussion, something immediately after. Yeah, you can fast them, but we just talked about there's time. it takes time to adapt, but they have to play again the following Sunday. How yeah. do I give them something that will give their brain a fuel source immediately versus delaying that, pro that, that process? All of a sudden, the brain starts starving. We start building tau plaques. We start developing CT. How do you provide a fuel source immediately after that trauma? I'm interested in seeing that. I think one day we'll see on the sidelines of some of these contact sports, like rather than drinking a ton, a huge sugary drink, uh, we'll start seeing some incorporation of like exogenous ketones to be able to provide a fuel source to the brain that it can actually take up and utilize. Yeah, that would be fascinating. Some way to to measure that the concussion sy symptoms or the duration of the concussion is lessening and then hopefully having further long-term effects as well. Right, and we see that in animal models. We yeah. see it in animal models. We just haven't been able to look at it yet in humans. But like yeah. in animal models, they do models where they induce concussions in animals. 
but they they like have given them ketones before and then looked at the duration of how long it's taken to recover it and it's it's improved significantly even on a on a ketogenic diet if you're able to get them on a ketogenic diet mm-hmm. or utilizing uh, exogenous ketone right so if they're already on a ketogenic diet theoretically they would have the protection built in exactly yeah very exactly interesting right. okay now you you had also mentioned fasting and um, fasting is very popular now and for good reason, um, but more sort of the time-restricted eating, um, not necessarily, you know, five-day, 10-day fast. That's its own thing that, that we can talk about. But the shorter fast, the 16-hour, the 20-hour fast, um, probably more in line with sort of how we evolved, uh, helps our insulin levels stay low, helps us lose weight, definitely uh, seems to be beneficial for promoting health. Now, when it comes with for exercise and fasting, uh, it can have different effects on the body depending on what our goals are. So how do you think about fasted exercise versus fueled exercise and, and who's it right for? Great point. I think it depends on the goal of yeah. the individual. If the goal is more fat loss, then exercising, do whatever that exercise is in that fasting period, probably won't be a, it's probably a good idea. Probably not a bad idea to do. If your goal is to maintain performance or increase muscle mass, eating around that period, eating around that time where you're exercising is probably beneficial. So you just shift that time point or that window in what you're eating. I think one of the most incredible studies would that I don't think is out there yet that would be done. And I have a theory on this, but like when I intermittent fast, most people do this. They tend to skip breakfast. Um, they might eat sometime in the afternoon and then they'll have something for dinner just because it's convenient. Like that's the convenience. Based on non-ketogenic studies, if you look at uh, studies that have given a larger breakfast meal and a smaller dinner meal, there seems to be more benefits. Mm-hmm. Eating a, a larger amount earlier in the day versus later on the day in, in non-fasting, non-ketogenic conditions seems to be more ideal. I think if it were more uh, feasible for most people, eating in the morning and then eating at lunch and then probably not having anything at night would probably yield better results than not eating in the morning, eating at lunch and eating at night. Just my theory based on the fact that you're more active throughout the day, you're going to be utilizing those calories. And then a lot of times people will eat this big meal at dinner and then two hours later be laying in bed or sitting on the couch watching Netflix or something. So um, it's just a theory I have. It's something that I want to do at some point, that research study, but the, the window itself uh, is is variable depending upon the context and the goals. Yeah, and that makes a lot of sense. I mean, Sachin Panda has done lots of work on um, circadian rhythms of insulin sensitivity, and and you're you're less insulin sensitive in the late afternoon and evening, and that's if that's when you're having your biggest meal, maybe that's not ideal. And also, you look at you know the quote unquote Mediterranean diet also has to do with the Mediterranean culture, which is sort of lunch or you know, a, a mid-afternoon big meal and then not in the evening, a much smaller meal in the evening. So a lot of these things seem to seem to uh, go along with that. But logistically and socially, it's just hard when the big meal, you know, is is the social meal with the family and the kids and, and you're going to skip it. It makes it hard. Exactly right. And a lot of people are more rushed in the morning. They don't want to have time to make breakfast. So 
logistically, it's so much easier just to skip breakfast for the time-restricted eating. And I think it's a good question. Does it make a big enough difference when you have it that it's worth the extra sort of logistical challenge to make it work? Exactly. Yeah. That's that's the big question. I think it comes, I'd rather people do it as long as they can sustain it. And like, I'm one of those people where if like I'm sitting down with friends or family, like it is more convenient to sit down at dinner time at right. night and be like, cool, just got home from work. Like it's, it's calm. It's boom. I'm just going to have dinner right. with family and friends. But it's like you said, it's, it's interesting. It would be very, very interesting to look at how big is that difference if there is a difference between morning and lunch uh, versus lunch and dinner. Right. And in a simple change, though, if you're having the lunch and dinner, just make the lunch the bigger meal, the dinner exactly. the smaller meal. That exactly works too. Right. Yeah. But so if I can summarize what you said, though, if fat loss is your goal, then working out fasted is definitely beneficial. If added performance and muscle gain is your goal, then you recommend eating something prior to your workout. And any particular composition of the food that you recommend eating before the workout? Yeah, it could be before or after. I just think okay. eating around that window, um, around that workout period, because you want to trigger, you want to initiate muscle growth. You want to provide recovery for that exercise bout. Likely, you're going to be resistance training if that is your goal, per performance or mm -hmm. muscle building. So you want to fuel that. And I think just getting in a high quality meal, right? I think sometimes people overcomplicate it and be like, oh, I need a protein shake or something after that. No, it's fine. Just go get real food, right. get a whole meal, get something that you can get in that has ample amounts of protein, maybe 20, 25 to 40 grams of protein, and just enjoy a meal. Yeah. So when we talk about fasting and health and longevity and protein, topics that come up again and again are mTOR and IGF-1. And Tough to measure, um, tough to know what the right balance is, but the thought is you need some stimulation of, of mTOR and IGF-1. They promote growth, muscle growth, health, and vitality too much, and it promotes cancerous growth and um, shortens lifespan and health span. How do you see using ketogenic diet, intermittent fasting, protein intake to sort of balance these concepts of, of mTOR stimulation, IGF-1 levels, uh, and how that applies to health? Yeah, it's it's so interesting because it is very, very difficult to measure. Um, it's I think one of the aspects about like intermittent fasting, being on a ketogenic diet, it'll it gives you this break from from constantly stimulating mTOR all the time. And I think I think there's a lot more to be studied. People just think that the protein, like initiating mTOR with protein is if I stimulate that all the time, it's going to be cancerous. I think there's other aspects to mTOR because mTOR is a very complex pathway that multiple things can stimulate it. Um, but I used to be of the, the thought process, like I literally, when I was trying to put on muscle mass, used to set an alarm in the middle of the night at like three o'clock in the morning, get up, drink a weight gainer shake with a bunch of protein. Cause I was like, I need to, I need to hit this threshold as much as possible. Wow. And it was just like this crazy mindset to be like, I'm, I'm trying to hit this, this as many times as possible throughout the entire day. And I was eating probably six meals a day with uh, branch chain amino acids in between like each meal. Yeah. And I was just trying trying to keep it elevated. Now being on like intermittent, doing intermittent fasting, being on a ketogenic diet, uh, I think I'm probably stimulating it uh, maybe two, three times per day. But I think for my goals and what I'm trying to accomplish now, that's plenty. Um, and I think it's giving my body a break from all of the digest and giving it some time to rest uh, as well. Right, right. Uh, well, we've covered a lot today, but give us an idea of what does a day in the life of Ryan Lowry look like? 
Yeah, so um, I'm a morning person. I like to wake up early. I think the hours from like I usually wake up at five o'clock in the morning, and from five to like eight o'clock in the morning is when I have my best like working time. Whether it's writing articles, reading new research, I use Google Scholar uh, and I I go through and try and find get these alerts for ketogenic or beta hydroxybutyrate, um, and I kind of look at oh wow this new study just came out and I love diving into it and being, because I think we're starting to see an explosion yeah. of more and more research, which is amazing. Um, and then I go and get a workout in. I, I like getting my workout in early just because by the end of the day, I'm tired. I want to go home and have <laughs> dinner or something. So I get my workout in, go into the office, uh, either have a bunch of meetings or uh, just crank on some more work. And I usually finish around five or six o'clock at night. Um, and then I get home and I usually have my meal, which is like a moderate meal. My lunch is typically, it's actually fairly small, but it's big in volume. And I think that's one of the biggest challenges that people forget about on a ketogenic diet. It's one of the reasons why people incorporate it in salads or vegetables is to get more volume. So like my lunch hack for people that are listening is... Um, I usually, if I'm on the go, if I'm in meetings, uh, I like just having MCT powder with protein, um, some creatine sometimes, and unsweetened almond milk. And and like if I were to put that inside of a blender uh, or a, a like a shaker bottle and just blend it up, it might be a small amount of volume. Right. But if you take that same amount, add some ice into it, and throw it into a blender, you're adding air into the equation. So that little amount now becomes this huge amount of volume that I pour into this huge styrofoam cup. And it takes me like 20 to 30 minutes just to drink it because it's so much volume. But it's keeping me satiated all the way until the end of the day. And I think that's one of the – there's different ways or different hacks to increase volume that I think sometimes when people struggle with overeating, uh, it, I'm one, I was one of those people where I came from eating six to seven meals a day and then yeah. all of a sudden cutting that back to two, it's like, wow, I need to figure out ways to increase the volume of my foods on a ketogenic diet using a blender and increasing that can can help significantly. That's a good hack. And what, what kind of protein do you use in that? Is it a protein powder or I use a protein powder. Okay. Um just I, I use a whey protein powder. Yeah. Um and just blend it together 25, 30 grams um and just drink it. It's delicious. And what kind of workout are you doing in the morning? I usually do resistance training. Yeah. Um, sometimes it's resistance training combined with some high intensity interval training. I I don't do as much cardio. Um We've actually done research looking at high-intensity interval training versus long-duration cardio. And if you do high-intensity interval training correctly, it's the equivalent of like 60 – like you can do 5 to 15 minutes of high-intensity interval training. It's like the equivalent of like 60 minutes of long-duration cardio. Yeah. Uh, and you don't have the the muscle loss that sometimes can be attributed to like long, long, long-duration cardio. So. I usually just do resistance training and high-intensity interval training. All right. And then your meal in the evening, what does that usually look like? Usually it's – I do a, like a little salad. Um, sometimes it's like some croutons uh, – not cr like uh, pork rind croutons. Okay. Yeah. <laughs> I was like – people are like, what are croutons? No, pork rind croutons uh, on top of it. And then some type of meat and usually a, a little bit of vegetable. Uh, that kind of just goes along with it. Very, I'm usually – I'm like a creature of habit. So mm -hmm. it's just easy for me. Um, I just prepare it and it's – it's a done deal. Yeah. Sounds great. Sounds great. Well, any other last thoughts you want to uh, leave our viewers and our listeners with? And of course, where can they find you to learn more about you? Yeah, absolutely. And I think the one thing I just say is 
always go back to why you're getting started. I think a lot of times people will get frustrated if you're like, you know, I haven't been doing this and I haven't lost as much as many as much weight as my friend or I've struggled and I fell off. Always go back to your why. And I think that's one of the biggest things to anchor people into this is you got to think long term. Don't yeah. a lot of times people look at temporary and they're just like or they want immediate results and it's like under play the long game. Understand that this is something that you ultimately want to help you help you 5, 10, 15, 20, 40 years from now. You want it to be able to help and it's the decisions that you're making today that are ultimately going to contribute to that. Um, so yeah, I think on social media, uh, you can follow me on Instagram. It's at Ryan P. Lowry. Sometimes people say Plowry, but it's just my middle name is Patrick. Uh, Ryan P. Lowry. And then on Facebook, Dr. Ryan Lowry. And we're just starting to do some YouTube stuff as well uh, on Dr. Ryan Lowry on YouTube as well. Awesome. Well, Dr. Ryan Lowry, thank you so much for joining me. Thank you very much. It's been an honor.